We are in a series that uh, is called, I Love My Bible. And today we have a, a text that I think is an interesting text. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in this passage in 2 Corinthians, does a contrast and comparison between the Old Testament and the New Testament. How do those relate together? You know, the Bible is this incredible library of, of uh, 66 books, 39 in the Old and uh, 22 in the New. It was written over a 1,500-year period. And, uh, and, and it's true, the Bible is true, the, not, because God, not because the Bible says it's true. It's true because it is the only reality that there is in life. It's, it's the only source that answers every deep searching question we have. Not every question, but every deep and profound searching question. It's there. And, and that's why it's true. Uh, not because we think it is or, or we say it is, but because it is reality. It is the most faithful expression of the way things really are, who we are, who all of creation is, the whole purpose and meaning. And that's why we, we need it, we turn to it, we, we study it, we uh, seek to understand it. How does this, but it, it can also be this confusing jumble, especially the Old Testament, how does it fit together? That's what Paul attempts to do here. And it's not simply an academic question you might be interested in in a Bible study. It's a very practical question. He compares the old covenant. We'll talk a little bit about what that is with the new covenant. We'll say a little bit about what that is and how these two connect, how they relate. And you get to decide every day whether you're going to live under the old covenant or under the new covenant, whether you're going to live under law and what you can do to please God, or whether you're going to live under the new covenant of what God has done in Jesus Christ to accept you. So that's our, our choice. Sad to say, we all slip back and put ourselves under that old covenant from time to time. And Paul says, it will kill you. It will lead to death. So what we'll do is we're going to, I'm going to just give you a little bit of background on this passage. And then uh, we're going to look at the three contrasts that Paul makes. But before we do that, let me pray for you and pray for me. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would be our teacher this morning. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. All right, a little bit by way of background. Paul, this is the second letter that Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Corinth is in Greece. You can still visit it. I'll tell you exactly where it is in Greece. If, if, you, if you look at a map of Greece, it's sort of in the shape of an hourglass. Corinth is right where it comes right together. And it's only four miles wide there, and it separates the Mediterranean from the Aegean Sea. And it was, it was a very uh, wealthy city, and Paul was, started a church there. And now he's writing to that church, because there are some problems going on. It. He wrote the first letter, and now around 58 AD or so, he's writing the second letter to deal with a number of problems. And here in this particular passage, he deals with a problem that came about uh, where the people were losing confidence, the church was losing their confidence in the all-sufficiency of Christ, that Christ really is the answer of everything that I need. And uh, in that my hope in my righteousness, is in what he has done, not what I do. And they were going back and putting themselves under that old covenant. And I think there's a reason why, and that's because uh, Corinth was a prosperous place. And 
Uh, and it was, the prosperity was built on the backs of slaves, a huge slave population, 10 times, 40,000 people, 400,000 slaves, uh, archaeologists estimate. And, uh, and so there's a lot of money. And when there's a lot of money floating around, there's a lot of compromise. There's a lot of competition. Uh, in some ways, life is harder when there's a lot of money floating around, certainly in many uh, ways in terms of our spiritual life. And so, and Corinth, because it was a seaport on both sides, uh, it, was a, it was kind of a cesspool, a moral cesspool, all kinds of promiscuity going on. And, I, and, and there was a healing shrine there, shrine to the god Asclepius. Now, Asclepius, if, if you know that the uh, medical staff, medical staff is a, a staff with a snake wrapped around it, that's, that's the symbol of the god Asclepius. Uh, the temple of Asclepius, you'd go in at night and you would lie there, if you were sick, you would lie down, and there, was, it was all, there were all kinds of poisonous snakes introduced into the temple. And they would slither across you, and if they slithered across you without biting you, you would be healed. That's what they thought. And the reason they needed healing, and archaeologists have actually found this, is because there was widespread sexually transmitted diseases there. In a fascinating museum, we visited it with some folks from the church a number of years ago. There's a fascinating museum there. That would be too gross for me to tell you in detail. But see me at the coffee hour, and I'll tell you. It's really, it's really nasty. Anyway, um, and, 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 and they've, they've discovered, it's evidence that people were trying to be healed. And so in, when there is confusion, when there's moral confusion, when there's times of uncertainty, people seek certainty. And so these Christians were seeking certainty in the black and white guidelines in laws of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, let me just say a word about what a covenant is. A covenant is just an arrangement by which people are going to live together. Maybe you have a real estate covenant. Our property in Maine is, is in a covenant with the other uh, owners around us. And it has protected us over the years. Because a while we, we have a large lot, other people do as well. Uh, and there was a while back somebody wanted to develop. We're on a lake. Somebody wanted to develop this. And the covenant said no. You can't. And it protected us. And so that's a covenant. We have a covenant here in the membership. You join the church, you agree to an arrangement by which you're going to live with the other people. You're going to live in harmony. You're not going to to argue. If you have a disagreement, you're going to resolve it, all of that. And the old covenant was God's arrangement with Israel. In Israel alone. It wasn't for the rest of the world. And and it, it was encompassed in some, first the Ten Commandments, and then some 613 uh, ancillary or corollary or uh, kind of uh, results of the Ten Commandments. And it governed every aspect of life, what they ate, how they dressed, how they related to one another, marriage, relationships with other family members, uh, relationships with, na- with na- neighbors. And it gave a wonderful order to it, but it was a very regimented life. And the problem was no one could keep all of the commandments. And there were even more added as time went on. Those are the ones found in the Bible, but traditions brought even more. And it just governed every single aspect. And it became the the focus. It was meant to to lead people to God and to help them realize their need for grace and forgiveness and, and salvation. But it became the focus itself. And it was all about keeping this law. And these Greek Christians in Corinth, are are saying, this is how we're going to be righteous. This is how we're going to deal with all of the moral confusion and turbulence that we we face every day. 
we're going to obey these laws and that's going to make us righteous. And Paul says, no, 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 you don't understand. And so he takes them back to an, um, an event that happened in the life of Moses. And, uh, and we'll look at that 1,400 years before. And he, he does this comparison between the face of Moses and the face of Christ. And we get to gaze either on the face of Moses or the face of Christ every day. We get to find our hope in trying to be obedient to every moral idea and obligation within us, or we get to trust in the grace of Christ to give us the power and the will to live how God wants us to live. We see here a wonderful illustration of what biblical theologians call progressive revelation. It doesn't mean it's you know, progressive in the sense that we talk about prog- progressivism today, you know, liberal. It's progressive in that revelation progresses through time. The Old Testament is a partial revelation of God. It doesn't tell us everything we need to know about God. It doesn't tell us the most important part, and that is how God is going to redeem, how he did redeem the whole world. And so it was, it was intended to make a beginning, but it's not the whole story. And so for these Greeks to be going back to it, it was like going back to school. In fact, that's the word, the idea Paul uses elsewhere in Galatians, where this was also a problem, was also happening. There he uses a word that, um, well, I'll read you the passage. He said in Galatians, the law, which is the old covenant, in the Old Testament is the story of that law lived out through time, through, for the Israelites throughout their whole history, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Put in charge is one word in the New Testament, pedagogus. We get the word pedagogue from it. What's a pedagogue? A pedagogue is a teacher. If you're a teacher, you're a pedagogue. The law was, was a pedagogue to lead us to Christ. And in, in rich households in the ancient world, in rich Greek households or Roman households, there was a slave designated to get the kids to school or to teach the kids themselves if uh, there wasn't a school. And he was called a pedagogue. Paul is saying the old covenant was the school to teach us about Christ, to point us to Christ. How many have graduated from school? No, I'm just kidding. Don't put you in <laughs> You don't go back to school, do you? Maybe for a reunion. I have a recurring dream, and I probably shouldn't go down these rabbit paths. Does anybody else have this recurring dream? I'm, I'm in high school or college, and I'm taking a math course, and math was my weakest subject, although I did very well in graduate school. But I, and I have a dream, and there's a, a math final exam coming up, and I realize I have not been to class all semester. I haven't a clue. How am I I can't leave. Does anybody else have a dream like that? <laughs> You're normal. <laughs> Neurotic, but normal. And uh, you don't go back. And we don't go back. It's progressive. We go forward. That's why the temple does not have to be rebuilt in Jerusalem for Christ to come back. Some people say that. No, we're the temple now. We're the new Israel. Christ doesn't have to come back and sit on the throne in Jerusalem. 
He's already enthroned in heaven. He will come back, but that's all gone now. That's over. And it actually ended literally in history in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and therefore the priesthood ended, the, the old obedience to the law ended, the sacrificial system ended, and Judaism had to reinvent itself, and it did. And that's what we see of Judaism today. So that all by way of background, I took a lot of time. But let's look at the contrast. In the first one is life or death. Paul says that. He says in verse 15, Now if the ministry, and by ministry he means the covenant. If the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, remember it came on stone, tablets, on Mount Sinai. If it came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry, the covenant of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that's the new covenant, this new arrangement made in the blood of Jesus Christ, will not be, that be even more glorious? You know, Paul is, not, Paul is Jewish, so he's not against the Old Covenant. He loves the Old Covenant. He says it has a glory, and it did. People were drawn to it all over the ancient world because it had a moral clarity to it. It had beauty to it. The worship must have just been incredible. There was singing like we did. It must have just been spectacular. And, and there was an attractiveness to it to the point where all through Jewish history, pagans were drawn to it. They might not get, go fully all the way, but they wanted to know about this God of Israel. And there was a, there was a, we sing sometimes, and it's in the Psalms, about the beauty of holiness that phrase, it's in some of the praise songs and it's in the book of Psalms. There is a beauty to holiness, to innocence and to purity. I sometimes watch uh, my grandkids uh, and, and, they, and they're, they're, all, they're young, they're little, and there's such an innocence about them. I just watch them when they're playing. They, they don't see me watching them. And there is such an innocence to them. And, it's, and there's a, it almost makes me want to cry. There's a beauty to that. A guilelessness. Uh, they're, they're so simple and naive, and, and, and yet we know in just a few short years that innocence will be lost. And like all of us, they'll be compromised in many different ways and have to live out the rest of their lives in this state of compromise that we live in with all of the pressures that come against us and, and temptations and failings. And, and that was what he's talking about. And yet he says, in spite of that glory and that attractiveness, it leads to death. Here's how it leads to death. Because it focuses on us. What we need to do to make ourselves righteous with God. And that is a losing argument. Because none of us can keep that we can't even obey our own expectations, let alone the expectations of God. And so it kills you. It depresses you. It discourages you. You feel embarrassed and ashamed, and, and, and we fail. And that eventually leads to an inner condemnation. And, a, and, a, and it's a death of our spirit. On the other hand, the new covenant, because God through Jesus Christ, when we receive him and trust in what he has done, he puts a new power within us that is his Holy Spirit. And that enables us, though um, imperfectly, it enables us 
to fulfill his expectations and his hopes. And that leads to life. The old will kill you because you're focused on yourself. The new will, will liberate us and, and, and give us hope because we're focused on Christ. It's the difference between do and done. Do is what we try to do for God. Done is what Christ has done for us on the cross. All religion is based on do. You know the very word religion, it's a Latin word. It means to bind upon religio. Get ligaments from it. It means to bind upon. That's what religion does. It binds you in fear and in guilt and in shame. In Christ, we're set free from that. I uh, coach pastors in Maine, just part-time, like I have something you know, to tell them. I listen to them. That's how I do a lot of my coaching. I listen to them, and I tell them about my mistakes. They don't want to hear about my successes. They want to hear about my, my mistakes. So if you're mentoring young people, tell them about your mistakes. That'll help them. Maybe they won't make the same ones. But this young man, he was a motorcycle racer before he became a Christian and before he became a pastor. He did what's called flat track, which is just an oval dirt track. Basically, it's a control skid. You go around as fast as you possibly can. The bikes have no brakes. Why? You don't want to stop. You want to go. So they take everything off that has any weight. And, uh, and so I was asking about it, and he said he had a very bad accident. He broke his leg. It took him about a year to recover from that. But he said, I did get back into it. And then I, I raced another few times, and then I quit. And I said, why? He said, because I realized I was no longer racing to win. I was, I was racing to avoid getting hurt. He was so focused on himself and uh, in what might happen that he might fall again, that he couldn't race all out. And he said, unless you can go all out, unless you're fearless, um, you'll never win. And I think that's an illustration of how the law kills us. We become afraid of falling again. We become, become afraid of failing. We become a, afraid of uh, all that we cannot accomplish by trying to obey Christ, obey the law. We become focused on our sins and instead of focused on Christ. Why do we do that? Um, God doesn't focus on our sins other than to forgive them and dismiss them and remember them no more? Why do we? That's the face of Moses. Gaze on the face of Christ. The second comparison he makes after life versus death is um, condemnation or acceptance. We see that in verse 9. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness and just a little word about the word righteousness. It doesn't mean doing right. It means being right. Not being right in the sense that I'm always right, but being right in my relationship with God, my relationship with other people, my relationship with myself. You've heard me use the analogy. It's like getting the first button on your shirt right. You get that button right. That's your relationship with God. All of the other buttons are right. You don't have that one right. None of the other buttons are right. Our, our lives fall apart. Relationships go bad on us. We, we uh, end up condemning ourselves because the first button is not in place. I actually had the first button buttoned wrong the last time I preached here, and my wife noticed it, and nobody noticed it. You guys didn't tell me. And uh, she said, I can't believe you stood up there with all the... Anyway. Um, 
That's why John has a mirror in his office. It's one of the little tricks I taught him. Did I look in the mirror? No. All right. And, um, and so we are, we are made right. And so there's no condemnation. Paul says there's no condemnation in, when we're in Christ Jesus. Under the law, there's condemnation because you can never accomplish it. You can never be as good as you want to be. There's always more that you need to do. It's like the, the, the church in Lake Wobegon, Garrison Keeler's fictitious town. The Catholic Church is called Our Lady of Perpetual Responsibility. I think that's a good description of many churches. The preacher says, you're not praying enough. You're not reading your Bibles enough. You're certainly not giving enough money. You're not here enough. We have more meetings. You've got to come to these meetings. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And you're thinking, how am I going to do all this? It's just obligation and responsibility that weighs and condemns us. And that's what the law does. Years ago, there was a man in this church who uh, was here actually before I came. And uh, he was one of uh, our leaders. His name was Frank Garnett. Some of the older members here, longer term members will remember Frank. And Frank told me a remarkable story. He had grown up in a Catholic church. And I'm going to do a pox on legalistic churches, whether they're Catholic, whether they're Protestant. Uh, And in the liberal churches, the, 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 the legalism is... You're not saving the planet enough. You're driving that big car. Get rid of that. I've got a friend who's in the pastorate. He was in the pastorate. He's my age. He's deeply, deeply depressed. We went to school together 50 years ago in California, and he lives out on the West Coast, and he's deeply depressed because the planet is going to die. Well, it is getting warmer. You know, 8,000 years ago, we were, we'd be under a mile of ice right now. But there's a, and I think it is getting warmer, but there's nothing I can do about it, so I'm not going to worry about it. And he's, he's, he's suicidal, and he's living in a state where it's legal, it's physician-assisted suicide, and he's already made a pact with his wife and his kids. We had an intervention. I call him every week. I'm going to call him tomorrow night, and I pray with him and encourage him. But he's posting on Facebook, we have to stop eating meat to save the planet. Really? That's sad. That's sad. So it happens even in progressive churches. But Frank Garnett was in a Catholic church. And he, he was always, always felt that he had never done enough. He had to do more to be accepted to God, by God. And then he went through a divorce. And that was the end of it. He could no longer receive communion. He was excommunicated. That was, was many years ago. And so he left. They stopped going to church. He remarried. And then he started coming to Free Christian Church. And he started hearing, it was even before me, but he started hearing the Bible taught. And he was very intrigued. And then he had a massive heart attack and was in the hospital, Lawrence General, and uh, was lying there, to, you know, hooked up to, to machines and wires and everything. And he, he just, he was afraid. He thought he was going to die. He said, for the first time in my life, I just cried out to God. I told him how sorry I was for everything I had done to hurt people, on and on and on. And I just cried out. And he said, I heard the sound of angel wings. And he said, I could hear, I just sensed God's presence wrapping around me. And for the first time in my life, I felt 
that God had accepted me. That's the word he used. Had accepted me. And uh, then he started coming to Free Christian Church, and he understood the gospel. And and he he, uh, believed in Jesus Christ, gave his life to Christ. And he gave that testimony from this pulpit. And then a few years later, he had a second and fatal heart attack, and I got to do his funeral and tell that story. Condemnation that we put on ourselves and our conscience. We can never do enough. I did all this, and it's still not good enough, God. What is it going to take? It's going to take what Frank did. It's going to take surrender. I give up trying to make myself acceptable. And Jesus Christ says, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now I can help you because I'm accepting you as you are. Because what my son, what happened on the cross, God says, my son, he paid the price to redeem you. You don't have to pay that price again and again and again. And then this one final death and life, condemnation or acceptance, this facade or authenticity. And here Paul elaborates a little bit on this incident from 1,400 years before in the book of Exodus about Moses on the mountain of Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. Verse 12, therefore, since we have such a hope, hope in God, hope in Christ, we are very bold. We're confident. We can live with confidence. We're not like Moses who had put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. I think this is a very poignant moment that Paul is showing us about Moses. Think of Moses, this towering figure of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. He goes up on Mount Sinai and he receives the law. And it comes in three tablets, like Mel Brooks in History of the World. Remember that great scene? And he's got the three. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the 15th. The Ten, the Ten Commandments. You know, one of them falls and shatters. No, that's not what happened. Moses gets the tablets, the two tablets of the law, because it was a covenant. God kept one part, the people kept the other part. Ten and ten, not five and five. They had a copy, he had a copy. That's how it is in a covenant. Everyone gets a copy. He comes down from the mountain and the people are afraid of him because his face is shining. I mean, he's been in the presence of God. It's glowing. And he doesn't know it. He doesn't know why they're running from him. They're fleeing. And so he puts a veil over his face and then they come to him and he teaches them. But over time, the glory starts to fade and he realizes it. And so he keeps putting the veil on so the people won't realize it. I think that's that's sad. He didn't want people to know he didn't have it anymore. They wouldn't trust him. They might not follow him. They might not like him. And so he had to keep the veil on. He wasn't bold. We do the same thing. We come to church. Our life maybe is a mess. We put the mask on. People says, how are you doing? Oh, great, great. Couldn't be better. Living life, yeah. And we're dying inside. That's why in a small group, you always start by saying, 
How are things going? The groups that I, I coach and I teach other guys to lead these pastors groups, the first thing you say, how's it going today? How's it going in your, in your church? How's it going in your life? And that's when the masks come off and a pastor's free to say, it's not going very well. I'm really hurting. Now, you can't do that with everybody. The mask, we have filters and they protect us. You can't be bleeding over everybody. But you, we need a group of people where we can take that mask off and be real and be genuine. You know, it happened in a small group that Kathy and I were leading a number of years ago. And a couples group. And I, I, I always liked leading couples groups with Kathy because she did all the work. It was great. I just got to show up and answer questions. No. But anyway, she did a lot of the work, I'll be honest. And we had a little argument right in the middle of this. And I, I don't remember what it was about, but we kind of went back and forth. It got a little tense there. And I didn't even think anything of it, and Kathy didn't either. Because I'm so confident in her love for me. I'm so confident in my love for her. that didn't matter, didn't, But all the members of the group were like this. <laughs> and one of them... And she's here today. She may remember. <laughs> Won't embarrass you. Don't worry. She said, wow, I'm glad we got to see that. <laughs> we can be real. We can take the mask off and be real because it's not about me. Paul says, I boast in my weaknesses. We hide our weaknesses. He said, I boast in my weaknesses because it only shows how powerful the grace of God is in me. If God can use me with all of my flaws, he says, then, then that should encourage you. But we hide our weaknesses. And we pretend we're better than we are. And it's lonely behind that mask. But in the new covenant, we are free. There's a freedom. We're, we're bold, Paul says, because I don't have to pretend that I'm perfect because I'm not. And I don't have to worry that you might not like me. Because God likes me. And that's enough. There's a, a wonderful scene at the end of uh, Phantom, Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, which is my favorite of all of them. You know that show is still running on Broadway. It's in its 32nd year at the Majestic Theater in New York. It is the longest running show in Broadway history. We saw it about 25 years ago with uh, Kathy and me and our kids. And it's the only time in my life when I have felt chills down my spine. You know, people would say that. I didn't know what they meant. I felt it. In the, in, in the very end, the closing scene, when the phantom sings, it, Christine, it's all I ask. It's a reprieve of that song. It's all I ask of you. Man, did I have chills. Christine, maybe some kind of a circumlocution for Christ, because in that scene, this is what happens. She's no longer afraid of him, and now she pities him, and she has been set free to marry uh, the love of her life out of his uh, control. This haunted face, whole, she says, holds no horror for me now. It is your soul that the true, in your soul, that the true distortion lies. And then she rips off his mask to show his disfigured face. She says, pitiful creature of the darkness, 
What kind of life have you known? God, give me courage to show you you are not alone. And then she kisses him on the lips. But it's not the kiss of passion. It's the kiss of compassion. And that's the redemptive scene in the musical. And that's what Christ has done for us. He has embraced us in his love. And we can take the masks off. We can be real. Well, what are you going to do with this? Well, there's a lot of things. I hope you're in a small group because it's the one place where you can take that mask off and know that you're safe and know that you can grow. I hope you're gazing on the face of Christ because it's when we come from our failure and we turn again to Christ and we bring our failure, our embarrassment, our shame, all of that, and we bring it in our, our grief and our sorrow, we bring it to him that he, he transforms us. A little bit by little bit over time, it's in that process as we yield ourselves and surrender ourselves to him that he changes us from glory to glory. And it takes time. I, I have a long way to go. I figure I'm not going to be ready to go to heaven until I'm a lot more like Jesus. So I guess to me, I'm going to live to be about 140 because I have a long, <laughs> long, long way ahead of me. But that's our joy and our hope. Every day, look at the face of Christ, not the face of Moses. Amen.